Welcome to another edition of the Healthy Indoors Show. I'm your host, Bob Krell. This week, we have a special 90-minute edition of the Healthy Indoors Show featuring a contractor and consumer-focused episode. We're going to be covering three special healthy home topics. First being what consumers should know about filtration, UV UV systems, and other HVAC uh, options. Second section will be maintaining home health during shelter in place. And we'll close it out with a segment on reducing mental stress. <laughs> with me this week in the co-pilot seat, now taking the pilot sticks uh, fairly soon, will be Joe Medosh from Hayward Score. And we're joined again this week by Brian Orr. He's the founder of the HVAC School podcast and HVACR.com site. So welcome, guys. Thanks for having me. So I'll, I'll, I'll kick it. Well, for, first, let's preface by saying um, this show is live streamed on healthyindoors.com under the uh, HI show tab. And you're also able to access all of our episodes at healthyindoors.com under that same uh, location. We're also live streaming through, through our uh, Facebook pages for the Healthy Indoors show and healthyindoors.com uh, Facebook page. Uh, every week, We'll be doing this show live at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This week's a special edition. We're actually extending it out to 90 minutes. Um, you also can see all of our recorded uh, episodes from previous shows uh, at hi.com. And, you know, a little plug for Healthy Indoors. There you go. Thank you for the graphic, Joe. Uh, Healthy Indoors is a monthly digital magazine that's free worldwide to everyone. Uh, we are out there providing credible information on a whole host of indoor environmental topics, including, uh, you know, the standards in mold and uh, asbestos, lead, radon, all the things you would normally expect from an indoor environmental show. Uh, obviously, we're heavily focused on COVID-19 right now because that is near and dear to everybody's minds. But we also cover a lot of topics like building sustainability, um, building performance, and uh, a lot of other things that uh, really are part of our collective indoor environments. So with that, I'll turn it over to Joe and let you... Uh, take the lead here. Hey, thanks a lot, Bob. And thanks for hosting this. And um, one of the things we want to do is do something like this, but it, this is actually technically challenged. If you've gone to some other um, webinars, you may have found the challenges that are happening between internet speed or uh, other focuses. So uh, one of the things that we wanted to do is make sure we came up with a, a nice stream. So thank you for hosting this, Bob. And oh, we uh, will be back regularly, at least, at least I will, to help you <laughs> do stuff in the future. So um one of the things that we want to focus on were, again, like the consumer is getting bombarded with uh, contractors coming saying, hey, we can kill the COVID, you know, and we can do all these things for your house. Let's just put in this UV. It kills everything. So that's the kind of stuff that some people are be like, oh, yeah, I want to protect my family. But what's really going on? What's happening? So that's why we brought Brian on. Um, we at Hayward Score feel there's a huge impact on the, the largest guinea pig study that's ever happening right now of people staying indoors longer than ever. And it's only begun. So your impact of your indoor environment is on a new level that we're now kind of just discovering. Um, and one of the things that hasn't been touched on anywhere I've seen so far, is actually the mental stress. So we brought uh, Adriana Hayward on. She's a psychiatrist about dealing with 
what's going on in your life, not just from your home, but just in general and, and what's happening from the news or financial challenges. So uh, we have a really great panel today. We separated into 30 minute sections and chunks. So you can uh, tune in to these later as, as individual segments also. So I brought Brian in because Brian is a master at a variety of stuff from residential and commercial. We're focused on the residential side and uh, there's a variety of stuff that's out there. So I'll kind of let you uh, open it up is what are you, what are the things people are calling you to install right now, Brian? Is a common question. Yeah, so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of conversation right now about things that can kill uh, COVID nineteen or kill the coronavirus. And the challenge, first off, is that that's a misconception. Now, a caveat before I go into this any further, I'm not a industrial hygienist. I'm not a microbiologist. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm a contractor who has done a lot of research and studying over the years on this, but then also a lot of this is coming up recently, specifically as it relates to this. So I'm not speaking as an expert in those areas. I'm speaking as a contractor who does this work and has to advise homeowners. But one thing we know about viruses is that viruses aren't alive in the same way that bacteria and fungus are. And that's important because in our minds, we imagine that viruses are going to make it into our air conditioner and into our ducts and our return and on our filter and in our coil, and they're going to grow and propagate on that coil or filter. But viruses don't work that way. Viruses grow inside of us, and then they spread when they leave us. And that's a really important distinction, because as soon as that virus leaves our body, it has a limited life before that lipid shell or that fatty shell breaks down on that virus and it can no longer infect us. So really, we're, we're playing against the clock here. As soon as someone sneezes and, or it leaves their body in some way and it ends up traveling through the ductwork, it's actually pretty unlikely that the virus is going to make it onto your, onto your evaporator coil, through your filter, through your ductwork, back into the space, and still be active to the extent that it's going to infect somebody. But as somebody who can't tell you for a fact that that's not going to happen, I understand some people just want to know, what can I do about it anyway? And so a lot of people are selling UV lights. This is the most common one that, that contractors out there are selling and pushing. And it, it's not so much because your initial question was, what are consumers asking for? Consumers are generally just asking, what can we do? Um, it's contractors who then say, well, this UV light will kill 99.98% of whatever on whatever. They'll start to make claims. And the thing to know about UV is the reason why contractors push it is because it's easy to install and it's inexpensive for the contractor. They can mark it up a lot and it's an easy thing to sell. Um, it's dramatic looking. It makes this really bright light. And it's also a very proven technology. And so when people look up about UV lights on the internet, they'll find that there's a lot of really good data. They're used in hospitals. They're used in industrial environments. But the reality is, is that what a UV light does really good is it kills or deactivates live uh, microbes that it shines directly on for a given amount of time in a given proximity. And I can't say exactly what that is because it varies microbe to microbe. But what a UV light does that's actually pretty dramatic in an air conditioner is it keeps stuff from growing on your evaporator coil. And it does a really good job of that. So if you shine a UV light onto an evaporator coil, which is a, inside your, uh, your furnace or your fan coil, air handler, whatever, in the garage or in the attic, or in the closet, it shines on that coil that's normally wet and dark that tends to grow fungus on it, and it keeps that stuff from growing. But the problem is, is that we're not talking about fungus. So just because a coil looks nice and clean doesn't mean that it doesn't have virus on it or virus passing through it in the airstream. And that's where UV lights, at least the consumer ones that are installed in residential applications, really fall down on the job. 
is killing a, a little microbe that's flying right past it. In general, most of the UV lights, based on all the testing that I've read, don't do a great job in residential of killing those microbes with them just flying by. And when you read some of the data, sometimes they'll say, well, it will kill it eventually if it has multiple passes. And that's probably one of the most absurd claims that I see is the idea that this single virus is going to make it past this light and then it's going to travel through, going to go out into your house, back into the return, back to the filter, back across the coil and pass across the light again. It's just a ridiculous proposition. So the reality is, is that UV lights are not a bad technology, uh, especially if they're in the UVC spectrum where they produce no ozone. Um, ozone is a nasty that we don't want to produce. So modern UV lights we're talking about, not a bad idea. They actually are a pretty good product. It's just that you should be paying a reasonable price for them because they're not a terribly expensive product. You need to understand the lifetime cost of them because you have to replace the bulbs on average every one to two years, depending on the model. And what they really do well is they keep fungus from growing on an evaporator coil. That's the job that they do best. And it's not to say that they don't do something uh, for viruses, you know, maybe every once in a while, it might happen to to deactivate one that passes by. You're, you're playing a dice game at that point, but it's not going to be consistently effective at that, at least in most applications. And people will point to studies about how it's done in hospitals and in, in industrial applications all the time, but those are much more powerful bulbs and they are purpose built for the application. Generally, many more bulbs, much closer together and a reflective environment. So that way that UV is bouncing all over the place, hitting the uh, the live microbes from all angles. So that's okay. the general. Yeah, yeah. Thing. I want to clarify. So you're one of things you're talking about is that there you're you could have good UV application if it's inside, right above the air handler, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're close to where your furnace filters are as a concept. That if it's there and it's well installed, it could be effective. It's the ones that are kind of like somewhere down the line in the duct, thinking that it'll just kill stuff as the air moves past it are the ones that are really have not been able to be proven because air is moving so fast that it cannot kill that. Is that a summary? That's a good summary. But again, even if it's right above the coil, the idea that it's going to somehow do something for the, um, that it's going to somehow do something for the air that's passing through the coil versus the particles that have actually stuck to the coil. Those are, that's a very key distinction to make. And it's an important one to, to be clear about that. It's not like, because most, most of the things that are in the air, that air is moving very fast um, as it goes across an evaporator coil. Most of it that's in the air is probably going to stay in the air as it goes across that evaporator coil. Now I'm speaking in generalizations here, and it depends on a lot of particulars. But if that stuff is in the air, it's probably not going to kill it, regardless of where you shine that residential consumer grade UV light. Well, I mean, it's a contact time, right? You're moving at about 500 feet per minute in that airstream. So you just figure how long something stays in front of a bulb that maybe radiates three feet. Yeah. If it's going 500 feet per minute. Yep. Yeah. Going pretty fast. Absolutely. So there's a, there's a couple of uh, strategies. One, you're talking about the most common one, which were is very uh, frequent that contractors saying, Oh, I can kill everything and want to install something because it is simple and cheaper. But one of the things that, um, we also want to talk about is uh, ventilation. And uh, we talked about there's a simple way to do ventilation. I'll let you take that one because uh, Bill will also reiterate it. What's your easiest recommendation for ventilation, Brian? Yeah, so the first thing about ventilation, when we're talking about ventilation here, we're talking specifically about ventilation bringing in outdoor air 
into the inside space because some people get confused just mixing air inside the house while that can be helpful in certain applications we're talking about ventilation air from the outside and the easiest way to do that is just to open a couple windows uh, bill makes a great recommendation which is that you just crack a window enough that you can feel a little bit of air on the back of your hand and you do it across a space so if you have a big open living room you open one window just crack it so you can feel the air in the back of your hand on one side and do the same on the other so that way you get some cross ventilation without having to move nearly so much uh, CFM of air because you know we, we want to help uh, dilute that air, but we don't want to bring in more than we have to, especially if it's very cold, very hot, very humid, very dry outside. Excellent. So the other one that um, I want to address is kind of the difference between trying to kill stuff, but also uh, I, I'm a firm believer, just capture it and throw it away. So um, there are some other things I want to talk about, but let's all talk about filtration and why you shouldn't just go out and try and get the, the largest MERV or highest rated filter and just throw it in your uh, air handler without actually understanding what it may do or get some advice from um, somebody like yourself to make sure that you're not stressing your system out. Yeah. And that's, this is, this is a really key thing because you can have a, and I, people will always ask, what's the best air filter? Well, the best air filter is a brick wall because nothing's going to get through it, but also air is not going to get through it. So it catches everything, but also no airflow. So that's a problem. Um, so we have to have a, a balance of a filter in order to catch things. It's going to be restrictive to airflow. It's going to push back against that airflow. But on the other hand, we want it to be, uh, you know, loose enough that we can get enough air through that the system works properly. And we do a measurement called static pressure. It's not super difficult and all good uh, air conditioning technicians uh, should be able to do that test. And we look at static pressure drop across that air filter and we balance that against MERV rating. As far as MERV rating goes, the higher the MERV rating, the better it's going to capture, especially small particles. So, you know, a typical MERV 8 filter is the kind of filter you're going to pick up at your general big box store or your air conditioning contractor is probably going to use. And those filters... Uh, they're not very restrictive, um, but they're also not going to catch the smallest particles. And those particles are often talked about as PM 2.5, which is particles that are smaller than 2.5 microns. And so in order to do a better job, we want higher MERV, but we also want to be able to get good airflow without too much pressure drop. And the easiest way to do that, as shown on the screen here, is to go with a larger filter with more surface area. So that way you can use... A, uh, a denser material, but then by using large pleats, you have greater surface area. So that way uh, the air can still get through. So if this picture here shows kind of a before and after on an install that we did. The one on the left is how we, how we found it. And the one on the right is what we did to rectify it. So not only did we put in a larger four inch filter, but we also built a larger uh, return air duct uh, on the left-hand side and built out the platform and all that in order to give it more airflow. So that way, not only would it filter better, but it would also uh, do it with better airflow. And so you're going to have better system efficiency, better cooling. Um, a lot of you have experienced air conditioners that freeze up. And one of the most common causes of freeze ups are filters that are too dense or ductwork that doesn't allow enough airflow. And when you say airflow, I, I put those arrows in for specific to show that the, the older one, most of the airflow came in and went to the bottom of that fil filter versus your new system, which allows air to move over the filter evenly. So that's another thing to be thinking about is just because they create a space for a larger filter doesn't mean that the airflow will be able to use most of that filter. So you can see here in the, the, the previous one that that air came in, it was mostly headed towards the bottom of that filter. So the filter was not evenly used as well as it stressed out the bottom of it sooner than the rest of it. 
Yeah, and actually on this case, uh, what you're looking at here on the left, that isn't actually a filter at all. The filter was just in the bottom of the unit. It was just that one little one-inch slot down in the bottom of the unit. And that's what mm -hmm. most air filters are, are just little one-inch thick filters that are jammed in. They're usually not very well sealed. That's another really big factor with air filtration is that when you put a typical one-inch filter in, if you look around the edges, a lot of times there's all kinds of gaps and cracks. And so what happens is as your filter gets dirtier, more and more air starts to bypass around the edges of that filter and causes it to be ineffective. Obviously, in order for it to be effectively filter the air, the air has to be traveling through it. And the same thing is said, if you have a filter grill, um, make sure that, that, that there are no gaps and cracks around that filter where the air can travel around it. Yeah, that's a common thing that we see when we go to homes is that kind of set up. So um, I will give you one more slide to talk about when you talk about MERV, because that's the one thing that people see when they go to a um, uh, the hardware store or they order filters is something that is um, what's the MERV rating. And there are other methods of MERVs, but in general, they see something that says, oh, uh, what can I do to uh, be do the best thing I can? So um, what kind of advice would you tell people about here's some numbers to look for and here's where you really need a contractor to modify your, your system. What I really love to see um, in homes, if we can do it. And, and again, it's, this is putting in larger filters is one of these things that requires a lot of thought and experience and how can you actually do it? And generally it's going to require a professional. Um, I like to see MERV 13 filters with a static pressure drop of 0.2 or less. And that's, that's very technical sounding, but from a filter selection standpoint, most air conditioners out there aren't gonna be able to handle more than a MERV-8 without having issues from an energy consumption standpoint, potentially freeze ups, breakdowns, those sorts of things. But I would love to see you do MERV-13 or better. Um, the challenge is, is that when you go to much uh, more than MERV-13, MERV-13, they become more and more restrictive. And so there's strategies and how you can try to use larger filters, but it's certainly not the sort of thing that you can just walk up to your typical air conditioner that's got a MERV-8 in, slam a MERV-13 in there and walk away. It requires a lot of uh, thought and duct sizing and how the air is hitting the filter, a lot of different factors in order to accomplish that and, and do it well. Once you get above that, um, once you get even higher than that, then you get into that uh, kind of HEPA range. And that's the range that you're pretty much never going to be able to move all of your system airflow through. Um, a a five-ton air conditioner, uh, which, which a lot of you have in your homes, can move uh, even up to 2,000 CFM, sometimes even a little more. That's 2,000 cubic feet of air per minute. And you're just not going to move that all through a really re restrictive filter like a HEPA filter, as much as I love HEPA filtration. So I'll bring up one more slide, and that is that if you go someplace, not everything is rated MERV. So there are a variety of other options that are out there that, um, like if you go to uh, a, an orange box store, um, you may get something that's slightly different. So I'll bring that up as a comparison so, so people understand that if you're going to go to a store and look for MERV, it may not be there. So here's one of the comparisons we made to show people that um, it may say MERV on it, it may not, but it may have some other identifiers like uh, uh, um uh, FPR or MPR, these are all numbers that relate to the same MERV numbers we were talking about. Yeah, great. And I wouldn't even know those off the top of my head. So make sure that you refer to uh, Hayward scores list here. So there are some other um, things besides, so there's, we'll talk about like you can try and kill things and then still capture them. The other one is um, a good filtration method, which I firmly believe is the best way to go. But there were some other ones that are out there. Um, uh, PCO, um, uh, other electrostatic um, filters that are out there. Can you kind of describe what are some other things people may have actually have in their house right now and not even know it 
or contractors are trying to recommend for them? Yeah, so th there's a really old school um, version of filtration that was often called electrostatic or electronic. Um, and either way, they're utilizing and essentially a static charge, a static cling in order to get particles to attract to either a filter media or a plate. Um, not necessarily a bad technology, depending on which way you go, but just recognize that a lot of statically charged things that come out of a, a box and you put it in it statically charged, that static charge only lasts so long. And once the static charge is gone, well, then it, it's back to just the filtration of the media. And so that's one thing to think about. The other is on the electronic air cleaners, a lot of them were found to produce ozone. They were using very high voltage and they would, they would produce ozone in the air. And ozone has been shown um, to be a really damaging oxidizer and especially um, can affect certain people with um, certain respiratory sensitivities or ailments, those who are at the highest risk groups. So we've really gone to looking at using only things that are shown to produce no ozone um, or no measure measurable ozone. Um, and so that's why we've gone away from that. Now, when you go into that kind of next category of really popular things right now, um, they all fall into the category of what we call oxidizers. And ozone is a version of an oxidizer that was actually once used in order to purify air. Um, since that time, the EPA has come out and their guide and said, no bueno, don't use ozone. It's not a good thing to be using when people are occupying the space. Um, but oxidizers, what they do is, is they, they oxidize. They go out and they bond with the chemicals and the particulate in the air, and they actually change them into something else. And so you use these very radical um, particles like ozone that doesn't, you know, they don't want to stay what they are. They want to share electrons. They want to grab electrons. They want to change things. So ozone is a version. Um, one that's, that's really common nowadays is called a hydroxyl radical, which is just HO. Um, another one are uh, hydrogen peroxide radicals. And so they go out into the airstream and they, and they try to bond with things. Now, there's a lot of different factors in how they function. And so uh, the really common one is called a PCO. And when you see uh, products that are sold saying NASA technology, that's often what they're talking about because NASA did use uh, PCO and does use PCO technology. So the acronym, acronym police. What does PCO stand for? Uh, sorry, PCO stands for photocatalytic oxidation. And so very simply, all it means is, is you're using a, pho a photocatalyst. So you're shining a light on something and that something is creating oxidizers that are then oxidizing chemicals and particles that are in the air, including to some degree live organisms. And so when you see uh, these products that, and, and generally they are all kind of marketed the same way, they give really big claims. They'll say they kill certain amounts from a sneeze. They, they give all these really fancy new age, uh, you know, high tech NASA, they, they use, they throw all these words out space age technology. They'll say um, they're all based on using oxidizers. And it isn't to say that it's a bad technology or that it doesn't work. It's just that you are adding something to the air. And when you add something to the air and you breathe that thing in, that wasn't, you know, normally in the air, at least in the concentrations that they have, it can cause certain people to react. And in some cases it's been shown to cause real problems in the case like ozone has. And so I think you touched on, oh, I was going to say, I think you touched on an important point there too, that um, you create, you, you're doing a chemical reaction that creates other compounds. That, right. You know, so you can take a, a nuisance chemical and turn it into perhaps a worse chemical. Oh yeah. And that's been shown. I mean, uh, Berkeley did some tests on this that showed that it can actually create more formaldehyde versus less um, and other aldehydes and tulene and some other things. Um, th there's lots of bad chemicals that can be created by these. Now, I fall firmly on the side of the fence that says 
that it probably generally it doesn't happen, um, but it still can happen. And sometimes you can make things worse. Um, and the problem in residences is, is we aren't really designing for it. We're just throwing it in and we're saying it does all this stuff. And maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, maybe it makes it worse, maybe it makes it better, who's to say? And until we begin measuring more, um, I'm really uncomfortable with a lot of these technologies. Now, I will caveat there. Um, what some manufacturers are doing, and I like this, is they're starting to use these technologies in combination with carbon technologies, activated carbon uh, or charcoal type um, technologies, which are very well established and very well known. I don't think there's anybody out there who has a real problem with activated carbon. Um, the problem with activated carbon is, is that it has a it has a short life. And so you have to do something about it. You have to regenerate it or replace it at some point. Um, and so some people are using PCO technology and containing it uh, with active, <clears throat> activated carbon to ensure that none of those byproducts or the actual oxidizers themselves make it outside of the uh, active zone. And those are interesting to me. And there's some studies that have shown even the EPA guide um, talks about how PCO can potentially be used uh, in conjunction with carbon uh, for, a, for an effective uh, product. But still, the testing is very, very poor. It's very loose. Um, a lot of times these companies are paying for the testing themselves, admittedly, and that causes um, some challenges. So yeah, this is an example. Uh, this slide here shows uh, some of the uh, ways that these things work. Um, and this, a lot of this actually comes from the manufacturer's own information showing that it, it reacts and they call it, um, you know, activated oxygen or these sorts of things, even with ozone. And there is no question that these um, oxidizing uh, molecules, they do go out and they do attack other molecules. So people who say it doesn't do anything, I would definitely argue with that because it does do stuff. The question is, is what it's doing good or is what it's doing bad? Um, we don't know. It's kind of like Batman. You know, they, they go out there and, and, you know, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. Um, and and that's, that's very worrisome in a residential application where we're not doing as much testing as we probably should. I mean, how about some of the uh, claims that manufacturers make that, uh, especially with the PCO, uh, excuse me, not PCO, with the, uh, uh, with any of these type of reactant type technologies where they, where they make the claims that it actually has an effect in the outside environment, you know, outside of the actual unit, outside of the oxidizing unit, you know, yeah. you know, where, you know, you know, that it, the radical hydroxyls can kill mold all over the building and that sort of thing. What are your right. And that? that seems, that seems highly unlikely. Now, this is where you tread on really careful um, turf because there are companies that have very high powered lawyers and you say anything and they jump on you. And this is actually a really kind of uh, dark side of our industry. Um, so you got to make sure you say the right words here. But um, what I can say is that there are some that claim that hydrogen peroxide lasts long enough that it makes it out and it kills on surfaces themselves. I want to see video of how that test is done. That's all, I, that's all I'll say about that. I want to see, I don't want you to just show me the end data. I want to, I want to see a video of how that test has been done um, or, or, or at least photos of the rig that it's done in because I question it. Everybody who knows about hydroxyl radicals, specifically HO, know that that reaction happens within milliseconds. I mean, it is just boom. Those things do not last in the airstream. So you're not going to have hydroxyl radicals ending up in the uh, airstream that someone's breathing unless the thing was right in the front of their face. Um, and that's actually one thing that I like about hydroxyl radicals. The downside is, is you still have the potential of these byproducts. So unless you're using something else to help mitigate the byproducts like activated carbon, I'm, I'm still very uncomfortable with it. 
So one of the things that um, uh, Brian, I, I'll bring up Brian's links here and we can, you can find his blogs, which are phenomenal. That's where some of the resources I've got, but Brian's not just inventing this stuff. Brian is savvy enough to be like, I'm going to go find a trusted source and make sure I explain that and give resources. So his blogs are not things that him and his guys are making up in their shop. And one of the things that he leans on, which we also do is the EPA guidance and they have got some phenomenal resources that deal with air cleaners, but also mostly air filters. And this is their homepage where you can download version two and version three. There's a webinar with Terry Brennan and uh, Lou Harriman, uh, other publications that also uh, relate to this from ASHRAE. So this is what comes from that page and many of the things below are additional links. So we will release our slides tomorrow or when uh, Bob has the video ready and we'll put that on Bob's page and throw it on LinkedIn and some other places where you can see all these and have links to them. So um, one of the things that was is out there, I want to make sure I promote your actual um, uh, page. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that uh, Brian does that is um, well thought through. He's got some great advice for contractors about COVID, uh, things to do if you are a small contractor or just in general, they got some stuff about masks. Uh, a lot of things you wanna keep up with as a HVAC contractor, you would know. And one of the things that Brian mentioned a minute ago was that if you're in, somebody's gonna install something, you should be asking them, where did they get their information from? And what is it really gonna do in my house? What are the maintenance issues? So if you're asking good questions and they sound like they're not sure, this is not the person to be installing something in your house because the one place where you have the most exposure of what you breathe is your heating and air conditioning system. So um, I'm gonna bring Carl on and uh, Carl probably has a few questions to follow up with what you talk about with PCO and hydroxyls and some other stuff. So Carl, do you wanna bring your, uh, your video and audio on? Okay, thank you. Yeah, uh, first I want to say, Brian, that was that was an awesome presentation. It's one of the best that I've heard. Uh, not only Wait, one second. Do we introduce Carl, uh, Bob? Yeah, we actually did introduce Carl. Why don't you take it since you brought him in? Oh, um, okay. So um, Carl is a uh, uh, IAQ guru. Um, I refer to them in that because he it truly is in terms of the amount of knowledge he has. We ask him a variety of questions, and he is a living Wikipedia about a variety of stuff that Brian just went through and um, he somehow is able to capture an enormous amount of it. Um, it's hard to somehow get it out of him sometimes unless you ask him the question in person. Um, but he is a, a well-diverse uh, IAQ. He's had a, a wealth of information from being IAQ president, um, uh, ISIAC related, uh, anything that's been an industry uh, condition. He's been involved and probably was a president or a major founder of what happened. And he's just, isn't, this isn't what he went to school for. He actually also had a significant challenge physically in his home that, you know, really uh, like Bill and Adriana devastated their lives. And then he decided to dedicate his life to teaching others and learning more about how the home impacts your health. So if I left out something, Carl, please feel free to add to that. Oh, no, that you did a very good job with that. Um, so the I, for, first thing I wanted to say uh, with Brian was uh, what an awesome presentation that was. We, we covered high points that are critically important. Um, and what I would like to ask Brian or you or someone is one of the questions I get from people all the time is, okay, that's, that's fine. I hear about MERV ratings and uh, the technologies and so forth. But the people that come out to my house say something different. How do I evaluate uh, a contractor, are there like certifications or licenses? Are there organizations that they'll a member of? 
what are some kinds of things that I can start screening people so that uh, I don't get trapped into the into all the fantastical claims? My suggestion on that front for right now, um, because I, I don't think there is one good answer, is to uh, be pretty well versed in it yourself first. Um, and a lot of these concepts aren't that challenging, sort of like the thing that I just covered here and maybe one or two of my blogs or some of the things that are that HaberScore has to offer, Healthy Indoors. You know these topics well enough. Um, you'll know pretty quick whether the person you're talking to really knows their stuff or, or doesn't know their stuff. Ask them about studies. Ask them for data. If they can't provide any of it, then then I wouldn't do business with them. There's a lot of companies that are primarily just trained from the product manufacturers that they sell, and they're really just trained on sales techniques. That is the vast majority of people who sell IAQ products in the HVAC industry. Um, that is their only training. And so there is, um, I could tell you to say, and you know, I could say, you know, look for ACA members or IAQA members or that sort of thing, but it's going to be so rare that you find a company that applies that uh, besides having just one nerd within an organization like me who knows how to talk it. It's very tough to find full organizations that really know top to bottom these sorts of topics. And it's taken a long time for me to build my contracting company into that sort of business. But to answer your question, it's an area that we need to see growth. But consumers are going to have to know a little bit about it before they go into it if they want to buy wisely. I mean, are you seeing a lot going on now, though, in, in lieu of this pandemic and you know the COVID-19 crisis of perhaps contractors maybe trying to uh, unfairly capitalize on people's fears and worries? Oh, yeah, ab absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I am. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, well, I'm not going to name prices, but we're seeing exorbitant prices being charged for UV bulbs. Somebody just slamming in a UV bulb. And I don't think, see, what, what happens in sales, and everybody knows this who's ever sold anything, they convince themselves that what they're doing is helping the customer. And they get so ferociously angry. I mean, I had a guy on Instagram who was going after me making videos saying that I was some, you know, he was calling me all kinds of names I can't repeat here, just because I was calling into question some of his favorite technologies, not even criticizing. I'm saying basically what I said here, which is, you know, there's some good, there's some bad, you know, the testing isn't so great. Um, so people are really um, deluded right now in our industry as it as it regards IAQ, they, they believe that what they're selling is helping people. And I would say that nine times out of 10, it's probably doing no good as it relates to COVID. And in some cases may be making people's health worse. One of the questions that has come up in the background was about, so viruses are just incredibly tiny compared to the, we mentioned size of particles as being in microns and uh, two point uh, PM 2.5 PM 10 PM one or probably some numbers that are out there, but viruses are just a fraction of these kind of numbers that we were do, and we compare them to the size of a hair. So why don't, if the two of you guys could address the challenges of uh, how do we actually filter, and you know, if, if we can viruses and what is it that they actually want to cling to? Because we can capture that, you know, they're virus carrying uh, particles or what we really can filter. So uh, I'll, I'll throw that to you first, Brian, and let you follow up, Carl. Yeah. So um, one thing that I would suggest that people read is the Smart Air um, Filters blog. Um, they're not actually a company that's interested in selling things to you. They're a company that does really good uh, data research. And he talks about how uh, good quality filters, MERV 13 and better, can actually still capture a decent amount of these tiny particles through a process called diffusion. Um, 
it is a very interesting, it's a very interesting look at it because we think of a filter as just being a net that strains out these particles and the size of the holes dictate what it catches. And it's not quite that simple. Um, it's for this reason though, that I am a fan. If, if you really want to do something about uh, viruses, I'm a fan of bypass HEPA. Um, you can do bypass HEPA where not all of your air is going through it. And you actually have a real HEPA filter in there uh, that does a, a pretty decent job of catching these particles because it's not just the virus itself. It's the respiratory droplet that surrounds the virus. And so in many cases, the virus may be a fraction of a micron, but the respiratory droplet may be large enough that it can get caught. And so there's a lot of different factors. When you get into the very small, things act weird in a way that we're not used to. Um, but what we do know is that you can reduce the amount of free um, virus in the air by using really, really uh, high quality filtration such as HEPA. Such as HEPA. Now, uh, what I'd like to add to that is that um, HEPA filters filter better than most people think. They can actually go down below the 0.3 microns that everybody is finally, finally beginning to understand now. And that that, that 0.3 is actually the worst case they can go all the way down to a 0.1 or below at near 99.99%, almost perfect. After that, it drops off. But the point I want to make uh, with that is that just because it's not perfect doesn't mean that it's letting everything through. It still is reducing those smaller particles that carry the small virus. So that's, that's number one. Number two is you're exactly right about how the, the real concern with the virus is when it's in, moist in a droplet, when somebody sneezes or coughs or they're talking and laughing, something like that, and you'll in direct contact. So the filters will stop those large, um, those large droplets and even the small droplets. The other point, and this was pointed out by uh, Dr. Eugene Cole, he's a, a doctor of public health that was on the webinar two weeks ago is the Cleaning Industry Research Institute and he was pointing out that the viruses are almost never single particles, little tiny 0.01 or something like that. It's usually a clump, a group of them. So the, the real risk of, uh, of infection is direct people contact or from surfaces, fingers to mouth and nose and eyes and so forth. Not so much uh, in the HVAC systems. So going back to the conversation about uh, are people scared of this and, and are, are some salespeople playing over that? Yeah, absolutely, they are. And not only in the HVAC, but just about any product that you can think of out there. People are out in, in force on making all kinds of uh, claims about uh, COVID-19 and what they can do and they can kill it. You already covered that. They aren't alive, so you can't kill something that's alive. I mean, viruses aren't even zombies. <laughs> so uh, uh, I, I just like to uh, emphasize those key points. The thing that is still uh, troublesome for me, and that is how do I explain, and this isn't something that I'm asking for necessarily an answer that we can answer today, but the biggest challenge for me in working with people or consumers is how do they qualify somebody? And I think, uh, Brian, you really gave the best answer. Go to smartair.com, go to EPA websites, go to acca.org, um, find resources that are authoritative, fact-based, rather than just opinion and 
claims without any supporting evidence. And it's not easy. It's really tough. I mean, it's a buyer beware market. It always has been. Wouldn't you agree? The indoor environmental market. Um, there's an awful lot of puffery, an awful lot of uh, overly inflated claims out there. And that, that's one of the reasons we try to do shows like this and run the magazine to try to uh, offer consumers an opportunity to become uh, educated consumers in these marketplaces. Exactly right. You're muted, Joe. I mean, it's it's rare that he is muted, but sometimes it's a good thing. Oh, he's always <laughs> muted. <laughs> he's mutated. Okay, so um, Brian, I'm going to transition over to Carl. But do you have any last things you want to advise somebody? Like, if you if there was just one thing you wanted to make sure your contractor did or knew, it would be what? What would you tell your mom to make sure this contractor was aware of before she actually handed him a check? Are they focusing on what we call the Holy Trinity before they try to sell you any products? Are they focusing on filtration, ventilation, and humidity control first before they try to sell a product? Um, I just put a new air conditioner in my parents' house. Uh, it's, it, well, it was a, it's a brand new house, so it's a new build. And there's not any fancy products on the house other than products that deal with ventilation, humidity control, and filtration. Those three are the three that matter most. And if you do a good job of those three, you're probably going to be about as safe as you can get. And you have a blog on your website that actually focuses on those exact same three concepts if people want to go find that. Great. Yep, absolutely. That's at HVACRschool.com. Sometimes people forget the R. Um, and actually that article about the Holy Trinity was written by uh, a really smart young technician, Caleb Salibi. So I have to give him props. That was not written by me. Great. I'm sure there's lots of stuff that your um, amazing employees are doing that you're taking credit for in, incidentally. So, yeah. Uh, Brian, your wealth of information. So uh, we may come back to you for some few questions, but uh, I'm going to transition now into um, the impact that the home is having on um, occupants. So as soon as the um, shelter in place conditions happened, we started to figure out how much time does somebody spend in their home normally based upon all of our own experiences, and then how much time is there um, that we're experiencing um, now that could be 23, 24 hours. And if your home is impacting you, it could be incredibly impacting you. We think that you may have your, if you have any kind of symptoms or awareness, it's now going to be much more aggravated. Um, and that the, uh, my philosophy is that the home never had a chance to kind of settle. So sometimes there are people home all the day during the time, but now everybody's home and the home has more particulates, more cleaners, um, more chemicals, less filtration, more carbon dioxide happening. So uh, Carl, why don't you elaborate on uh, you know, what are the, some of the concerns that people should be thinking of about what they can do in their home and how they could make their home healthier during this uh, shelter in place time? Certainly, and th this is a very important part of it that nobody, well, almost nobody is thinking about. I was on a, a, a conference call with a, a group yesterday that they spent uh, about an hour and 15 minutes talking about indoor air quality and how it changes with the COVID uh, infections. And they were talking about commercial buildings and they forgot that those buildings are closed. <laughs> nobody's in those buildings now they're all at home so now you have entire families always at home 24 hours a day and there's a couple of things that can happen here one is that uh, people that don't spend that much time at home the ones that are out at work usually 
they now start noticing things that they never noticed before, or maybe that the, the, the spouse or the kids or whatever have been complaining about and they, they dismiss it and they, Oh, okay. Now, now I get what you're saying. So what are the, I'll get into those in a minute about what are those kinds of things that you can pay attention to that you need to be aware of. Uh, and the other then is because of higher increased occupancy, they, um, uh, you have more people in the room. And one of the, one of the uh, criteria for, that's well known in the industry about buildings and how many people are in there and comfort and that sort of thing is that people produce carbon dioxide when they breathe. So the more people in there, the more carbon dioxide is released into the air, the more it accumulates and you can start getting fuzzy, headed. You start maybe get, some people get headaches. They don't feel very well thinking slows down and the, you either decrease occupancy, take people out of the house, which you can't do because you're supposed to stay at home now, or it's a simple thing like open the window. So there are, and that opening the window increases ventilation, fresh air exchange. And that can, that can, uh, one of the simplest things you can do to remedy so many of, uh, of the, the other factors here. So, um, do you want to show that, Joe? No, I just print. People can go to uh, uh, the HaywardScore.com site, and uh, at the very top in the uh, right is uh, the COVID-19 resources, which has the video, and it also has a um, a do-it-yourself, um, uh, make a DIY air, air filter box fan. Um, we have instructions about how to do that. We have some other really uh, uncommon do's and don'ts that uh, other people kind of didn't uh, talk about. Uh, in terms of the the barrage of stuff that's out there. So there is some really great stuff that we try to find what everybody's not telling you um, or make sure that those are clear statements that people are getting. Um, and there's a lot of other advice that we have on there. So if you're looking for some basic stuff that you can do for, this is really around a, uh, uh, the filter costs around 20 bucks. The fan costs about maybe 20 to 30. And uh, it's a great simple way to put a, make a device that actually is able to capture and filter particulates, especially if you have a MERV 13 in the house, wherever it is, 24-7. These are a little louder than your normal air filter, uh, air purifiers you may buy, but they are a whole lot cheaper and they actually have a much larger surface area. So if you're looking for something in the meantime or in a, a, an adjacent room or somewhere, this is a great simple thing you can do and get the instructions from uh, at HaywardScore.com. Uh, I will be making a video this weekend about how to assemble this and why different filters will give you different results just in terms of the amount of air that flows through it. And we'll have links to all of these uh, to direct you to Hayward Score and everywhere else uh, up on the uh, show site, the HI uh, show. Well, one thing I want to let you go ahead and address, uh, Carl, because this is really one of your strengths in terms of, we talked about uh, HEPA with um, Brian and if you buy a vacuum, if you're looking at a variety of stuff, they all say HEPA. They now say HEPA-like, hospital HEPA, kind of HEPA, HEPA-ish. So can you kind of briefly elaborate on the difference between HEPA-like and what is something that would be considered HEPA? This is actually a common thing with vacuums, but it could be any kind of uh, air filter or air purifier has the same concept. Oh, it's HEPA, kind of. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a really tough one. Actually, it's simple. It's tough to understand sometimes and the terminologies out there. What we used to say is, you know, get a true HEPA filter. Don't get one that says HEPA-like or HEPA-style or something like that. Get a true HEPA filter. Well, now some of the companies are out there and that is their brand name. 
the name of the product is True HEPA, <laughs> regardless of what, regardless of what the specifications are. The, the confusing part is the names that are used. The simple part is there's a, it's going to sound geeky and you may not understand what it actually means or uh, very well, but it's very simple. If it says 99.97% at 0.3 microns, that is the technical specification of a HEPA filter. If it says anything else, it may also be a HEPA filter legitimately, but they'll marketing it with some special magical marketing words like hospital grade. It it's, uh, removes particles as small as 0 0.001 or something like that. The keywords is 99.97% at 0.3 micron. If it doesn't have that, you don't know and I wouldn't spend money or extra money on a product that does that. What you want is that specific uh, uh, specification. I'll say it again, 99.97% at 0.3 microns. One of the tricks to be aware of is when they say it's, uh, it's removes, this is better than HEPA, it removes particles as small as 0.1 or as small as 0.01. When you look at those words, it removes particles as small as, it only has to remove one particle for that to be a true statement. It removed a particle as small as, an open window can remove an occasional particle as small as 0.01 or 001, because it accidentally it sticks to the window frame. It's how many does it remove at that particle size? That's why the, the at 0 0.3 is so important. It's at a particular particle size. Um, so as small as or down to, those are kind of keywords to, to pay attention to and avoid. Go with 99.97% at 0 0.3 microns. You, you if mentioned I haven't said it often enough, I can repeat that again. <laughs> I was say, you mentioned earlier that um, obviously HEPAs are efficient way below 0.3 micron. The 0.3 micron is the hardest particle size to challenge in a impaction filter, and that's why that's used as a standard. So they don't stop capturing it sizes smaller than 0.3 micron. Well, sort of exactly, I, you know, go ahead, Carl. Yeah. No, that's ex that's exactly right, and that's something that a lot of people, including myself, until about uh, four or five years ago, uh, it was when I was president of IAQA. As a matter of fact, we did a study on HEPA filters. And we and how to measure the effectiveness of a not the filter itself, but the filter in the device, which is an air cleaner or a vacuum or whatever. And somebody who was a lot smarter than me said, "Hey, well, you know, you know, the point three isn't the bottom side; it's the most penetrating particle size." And it just blew all of our minds. And we challenged it. They gave us the original documents. Then as we went out or as the researchers went out to manufacturers to say, hey, could you help us by donating some equipment that we can test? And they started mentioning this. Every manufacturer out there admitted, oh yeah, we know that, we've known that forever. And it was like, well, why didn't you say anything? Well, we didn't need to, okay? So it's a well-known fact, even though we heard it for years and I still sometimes slip into it, it's the, it's the worst case of the particle sizes at 0.3, it's not the bottom end of it. They can go down to at least 0.1 and 
it's kind of difficult to measure below that, but it's a, it's a, it's a reduction. It doesn't remove 99.99, 99.97. It falls off after that, but it's still removing. It's still effective. So I want to summarize what you just stated. And the concept is, is that the particle size of 0.3 is the challenge. It's actually things that are much smaller. They actually stick to other stuff and can get caught. Things that are larger are easily able to be grabbed, but there's this magical number where you want to make sure they're capturing um, efficiently this 0.3 size because it's the one size that actually can uh, get into your bloodstream and uh, can actually get through filters. So that's why you really want to focus on something that can do that. So if you're, again, looking for your own filtration system, which I want to clarify something I asked Carl to, to elaborate on. If you're looking for a HEPA filter or a filtration system that's a MERV at any kind of store, that is has to uh, meet that technical specifications, all right? So if you're looking for a furnace filter and it says MERV, it's a MERV filter. It's when we get into other things like air purifiers or um, uh, vacuum cleaner bags or other stuff where HEPA is just kind of thrown around as an acronym, meaning that it's better than average um, is where things kind of get fuzzy. But if you're looking for a filter for your furnace, HEPA is actually a, a tough thing to, to do. We, we recommend a MERV 13. It will do the majority without stressing out your system, but you still really probably need to get an HVAC contractor to evaluate your type of motor, your type of filter, because a one-inch filter at a MERV 13 is a major restriction versus a four-inch filter, which allows a, several, probably up to 40 feet of filtration because it has these super deep um, uh, folds in it. So it allows a lot more, more surface, surface yeah, more surface area to do that. So um, I want to come back to you, Carl, and talk about some things that you you focus on in your lifestyle and you help a lot of other occupants. So one of the things that some people are not realizing now, but their home could be impacting them, but some people, their home is impacting them. They may be having asthma. They may be having uh, other challenges. And the last thing they want to do is really kind of be stuck in their house. They probably go out for a walk or sit on their porch, but what are some of the things you want to remind people about being sensitive to if they already have some sensitivities in their home or they know somebody that does, your kids may have challenges. Um, so let's kind of focus on, um, those who do have conditions that they, what can they do to try and alleviate some of their own uh, personal challenges? Yeah, certainly. And this is the, this is the part that isn't getting enough attention of what is going on in the home because some of the things I'll get into some of the, some of what those things are in just a moment. So some of the things that can accumulate or increase, or you start noticing in your home, they can increase reactions that you already have, like you just mentioned, Joe. Some people are already reactive or sensitive or intolerant of various kinds of things, whether it's fragrances or chemicals or pet dander or mold and dampness, those sorts of things. So as they accumulate inside the home, they can increase the reactions. Sometimes they can create a new reaction or at least a reaction you haven't noticed before because you haven't been exposed to that high a level for this length of time. Some of these can also make you more susceptible to the infection. But the most extreme example of that is people that smoke or vape. It affects the lungs. That's where the COVID virus really attacks you is in the lungs. So anything that puts a stress or a burden on the lung is going to have that potential of uh, making increasing susceptibility to not only COVID-19, 
but any of the other bacterial infections and viruses and so forth. Another factor there is that if you live in a multi-family uh, building, whether it's a duplex or quadplex or uh, apartment building, you can sometimes get some of these from your neighbor or what you have in your house in your unit will go into other neighbors. So those are the kinds of areas to think about. Now, some of the specific ones, uh, the major ones are really um, increased carbon dioxide from too many, from more people now with inadequate ventilation, and that's opening a window. There's VOC exposure. This is fragrances from uh, cleaning products. You know, wash your hands uh, uh, more often, use sanitizers, use disinfectants, clean surfaces is very important. So this is going to increase the use of all these different products that have a odor, uh, a fragrance. You can smell it. Those are what's called VOCs, volatile organic compounds, and they can accumulate in the house. And there's two ways to manage that. One is get products that don't have a fragrance. That's, that's the biggest way to reduce that. The other one is to at least open your windows once in a while, or if, uh, if the uh, weather allows it, leave it open like, your, like the video uh, shows and like you've talked about before about how to, how to open it just a little bit. The other main factor is excess moisture. Wait, wait, but I'm going to pause you one second, Carl. Yeah. So one of the things I want to talk about is VOCs and cleaners. And one of the things that we, you kind of know about is you don't mix, uh, mix bleach and ammonia. I mean, those are like, you know, it's a deadly toxic chemical that can That's happen. Right. People have died in, in cleaning their house or industrial areas. But one of the things that was not really common for us is that some people may want to use um, some type of cleaner and then they decide that uh, they'll use something different later that day. Meanwhile, the residue from that other, from one cleaner is still there. And now you're in theory mixing chemicals when you don't use the same consistent type of cleaner. So some people will use one thing and realize, oh, I'm going to use something different because I want to make sure I kill everything. And they will use a variety of products. So that's really not a great idea. Not only is it creating a second or a new chemical potentially, but it also could create a hazardous condition. And uh, we always want to stress that soap and water is, is just as or more effective than any of the other antibacterial stuff that's out there because it actually combats the actual bacteria and it, it focuses and it breaks it apart. And there's lots of great articles about that. We'll include those in the slide deck. But if you're wondering what to use, soap and water is usually the most common, even for surfaces. Um, so if you're going to do that kind of stuff. So I want you to talk about moisture as your uh, last comment. Carl, okay. Well, you. just to follow up on, on what you said there, yes, soap and, soap and water. Um, we don't need this magical juju juice, you know, that costs a lot of money to wait, go you, out. Wait, you have juju juice? Field. You have the juju juice? I, I, there's, my store hasn't had that in weeks. <laughs> the vinegar is also, you left out vinegar too. Uh, white yeah. vinegar is actually a really good uh, yes. cleaning agent for cutting through grease. Anything that makes a more acid or more base uh, can, can affect this. But the thing about uh, soap and water is that it physically removes the virus or the bacteria so there's nothing to kill or there's less to kill. And in fact, the disinfectants that are out there, including ordinary uh, bleach, is you clean the surface first, then you use the disinfectant or the sanitizer and so that it can get it at all and it removes most of it. What's left is... Uh, 
if there's anything left, then it can maybe kill it or deactivate it or something like that. And, you know, most of those cleaners also say use in a well-ventilated area. So uh, you want to make sure that the windows are open if you're using things that are considered to be a harsh uh, uh, killers of, uh, of organisms. That's right. And try to find something uh, during your occasional trips to the grocery store. Uh, try to find cleaning products that don't have a fragrance because it's the fragrance that is the, the most volatile of the VOCs, the one that's uh, more prevalent and can accumulate uh, in, the, in the house. So on to moisture now, uh, I mentioned how more people breathing increases carbon dioxide levels. It also increases moisture levels, not by itself, not that, not that much uh, uh, by itself or that significantly, but it adds to all the other moisture sources such as just your body actually puts off more moisture than your breathing does. And the biggest sources are not just exercising in-house, in, in, which is good for you. That increases the sweat. That increases a little bit of moisture. It's not each one by itself, you know, the, the, the deal killer here. It's the combination of everything. You add it up, you add it up, and then it starts becoming not two plus two equals four, but two plus two equals five and seven. It cascades like that. But one of the biggest ones is from cooking particularly if you do a lot of uh, boiling of uh, food and also showering. Um, people tend to take more showers and longer showers uh, when they don't feel well or they feel like that there's something going on in the house or on their body that um, is uncomfortable. And if you don't run the, the exhaust fan, the kitchen exhaust fan or the bathroom exhaust fan, which hopefully exhausts through the attic and out into the outdoor air, not just into the attic. But if run the exhaust fans, that helps to keep the moisture levels down. Why is moisture important? Well, a couple of things. One is that if you get enough moisture for long enough, it can start condensing on cooler surfaces and can grow mold and bacteria. Uh, the other one is that moisture increases odors if anybody's ever had a, a, a pet odors in their house and it, just, it, it rains or it gets very humid, you, the odor comes back again. Humidity increases the outgassing of not only odors like that, but also some of the chemicals, those, some of those VOCs again, that's in, that are in uh, building materials and, and furniture and so forth. So those three things, carbon dioxide uh, from over-occupancy and lack of ventilation, VOC exposure from sanitizing and cleaning products, get it without the fragrance and open your windows, ventilation again, excess moisture from people cooking, showering, et cetera. Again, use the exhaust fans as part of ventilation and weather permitting, you can also open, open the windows uh, to help keep the moisture levels down. Excellent summary. That was great. If you, have a, if you have a humidity meter, it's between 40 and 
I'm going to switch that down to 30 because we live in dry climates and it is impossible to reach 40 where we live. In fact, unfortunately, it's below 20. So there's, in fact, the previous ASHRAE recommendations were actually 30 to just below 60. So uh, in our uh, slide deck, we'll have some resources to that. And we'll also talk about why um, dry climates or dry conditions uh, have been actually known to be a unfortunately uh, better for flu transmissions and you can extrapolate that to just g- general health. So um, I'm going to bring on uh, Bill and Adriana and why don't you hang on for just a second, Carl, and we'll do the, the sure. group discussion here. So um, I messed up that Adriana is a psychologist, not a psychiatrist. I wish she could give us drugs, but she cannot. So, but Bob, <laughs> why don't you introduce the two of them, please? Sure. Um, so our, our, our final section here will be uh, discussing the topic of reducing mental stress during this uh, uh, pandemic and lockdown that we're all experiencing. So uh, with us uh, for this final segment uh, will be Adriana and Bill Hayward. Uh, Adriana is a clinical health psychologist, uh, and Bill is a building scientist and owner of a 100-year-old lumber and building supply company. Uh, they bought a new home in 2008, and this is how they began their journey. Uh, they, the family became extremely sick from what turned out to be uh, a damp, wet building. Uh, this started their journey to reduce toxicity in buildings, improve human health, and reduce buildings' energy footprint. Hayward Score is a free online tool that was developed to further understand the nexus between human health and the built environment. So Adriana and Bill built the first Hayward Healthy Home in Carmel, California in 2014 and are just completing their second. They live with their three young girls and three Italian greyhounds. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. So um, I'll bring up a few slides in the background while you talk, but uh, I'm going to have Bill go first um, and I'll remind you to be brief because I think that Adriana has uh, got stuff that we want to hear more than uh, the things that may have already been covered with Carl and uh, Brian. So uh, why don't you describe as soon as we, I did it briefly, about as soon as we knew that people were going to be sheltered in place, that you're, the light bulb went off, you, you have been like on fire since then because you know what's been happening to you personally in your home and what we think is also happening to others. So why don't you talk about that briefly and I'll bring up some slides in the background that you can see. Thanks, Joe, for the introduction. And Carl, great job, everybody, great job on that. So we've been modeling homes and housing for about seven years and now we've collected over 70,000 Hayward scores across the nation. This is people go online to haywardscore.com, they answer questions about their house. And uh, when you're done, you immediately get a report that diagnoses the house, tells you if it's impacting your health and tells you how to fix it. We track 23 medical symptoms in the process. So we have the largest database on health and housing ever assembled. And we understand how habits, indoor habits, our healthy home habits impact the house as well as conditions in the house. So when it was announced that we would all shelter at home, and I'm now three weeks sheltered at home. Uh, I thought, boy, we know what's going to happen here. People are going to be inside, more breathing, more moisture, more humidity, more chemicals, more cleaning, more working out in houses where people don't own the windows. And Hayward Score data tells us that 56% of the, the nation rarely or never opens windows, and another 30% only seasonally. So people aren't ventilating their houses. So we used the Hayward score data to model what would happen when people went from in the house in normal amounts of time to basically 24 seven. And what we found was pretty alarming. We suspected it, but Hayward scores would drop between 19 and 25 points. So we means going down 
and the expression of symptoms as reported by occupants would increase somewhere between 30 and 47 percent. Now that's a big impact. And so we're sharing one of our internal slides here and you can see these are the symptoms that we track. On the right in the green column, those are homes that score 75 on average, right? And you can see how often people report symptoms that range from trouble sleeping to depression to headaches, coughing, and then the normal ones that you would think about of uh, runny nose, allergies, and sneezing. As you move to the left, to the bottom quartile, the amount of symptoms that are expressed increase almost 100%. So in essence, each category of housing, whether you're in a really good house or a poor house, is going to move down about a quartile. And so what does that really mean? That means that I'm at home, I'm starting to have more congestion, I'm foggy thinking, I'm not feeling well. Uh, those symptoms may feel like COVID symptoms, and so I think I should get tested. Or I'm feeling uh, depressed, or I'm feeling anxious. Uh, I call the emergency room. So what we realized is that this is going to put heavy pressure on the U.S. healthcare system and the emergency rooms during the time that we're all sheltered at home at a time when we want to take pressure off. Okay, that's, that's the big worry. There are more worries, really, in that if we're all at home, we're trying to make the best of it. We're trying to protect the nation's health. We're trying to do the right thing. We're homeschooling and our kids feel anxious, right? There's just a number of issues that evolve out of, out of this. And if you already have a bad house, right? You've got a house where you know you have a moisture problem. You know you have a dampness problem. You know you react in it. And now you're in it 24 seven and your kids are home and their room's problematic. You're gonna be more worried. They're gonna express more symptoms and people feel anxious. Yeah, I'm, so, gonna pause, wait, I'm gonna pause you there because you just set up exactly why we brought Adriana on because of all the webinars we've all been seeing, they all talk about like gloves and masks and touch points and all of this stuff and open your windows is a common theme now. So um, let's really talk about what is the underlying challenge that's happening with folks. And um, so, so, so I'll kind of lay the groundwork and that is that you know, let's talk about Adriana about how stress impacts your immune system and some of the stress factors that people are having and what we can do to try to relieve those symptoms in the house. And thanks for being here. Thank you, Joe. Well, so this is an unprecedented time and everybody is experiencing it a little bit differently. The stress of all the different different possibilities is, is also overwhelming. So, so we're all going through this together, but all having different experiences. Um, so it could be anxiety, it could be fear. You could actually be panicking somebody you are caring for might, might be very, very ill and you can't get to them. Um, other people are on the other end of the spe spectrum. They're enjoying this time and that can bring up a lot of guilt. There's the different roles that people are playing in our society, those that are on the front line and those that are, are at home and maybe don't have a lot to do. There's an incredible burden that we're all assuming different roles. And um, Bill's in my office that I used to have. I am. <laughs> so you know, everybody has had to adjust to this. Um, stress, whether it is something positive in life or something negative is still stressful. So um, 
for all of us, this is truly unprecedented. And I want to go into a little bit of really how this affects the body and the immune system. Um, I also wanted to just share a couple anecdotes about uh, what our children have experienced. So we asked them, you know, what what are you going? What, what how are you experiencing this? And um, our twelve year old said, you know, I'm so worried about my grandmother. We can't. We are caring for her. We're del delivering food to her, but we, she, the children are just afraid. Is this person going to pass away? You know, that that's a real anxiety for the child. Um, we as adults can try and be more intellectual about it and process it. It doesn't mean it affects us differently. It still can be as extreme and as, uh, frankly, as debilitating. So those are all different things we have to process. Um, the worry over infecting others, the worry over how do we get our groceries? How do we do our normal activities of daily living? It is all changed. And so with change comes adaptation. Um, again, potentially a very stressful process. We don't know when this is going to end, how long this is going to go on. So all, all unknowns. Loss of control is truly one of the most stressful experiences from the poor little lab rat to humans. When we do not have control of our environment and our lives, we experience intense stress. So we really don't have control. We are told to be in our homes and we are told to limit our activities and everything about our lives has changed for potentially quite a bit longer. And the, the future is unknown at this point. So I also wanna say that those with pre-existing conditions, whether it's already an anxiety disorder or a depression, those conditions are even more at risk for exacerbating. Um, and the guilt, the isolation, the loneliness, all of those have physiological responses as well as psychological responses. So I wanted to give you a little bit of background on what is called psychoneuroimmunology. And it can is you say, a, that, say that again slowly. Psychoneuroimmunology. It was really brought to fruition in the 80s. So it's been around a long time. Joan Borisenko, who was a, a psychologist, PhD at Harvard, founding the Mind Body Research Center, um, really has done tremendous work in this field. And it's connecting just what it says. It's the psychology, the biology, and the immune system. So we have now decades of research on this to really understand how this all interrelates, how it all connects. Um, so for example, when you feel anxious about something, your it's called the, uh, the adrenal pituitary axis. So your, your adrenal glands fire off adrenaline and you feel anxious. That affects your brain and that actually impairs your immune system. Now, Robert Sapolsky, who has done amazing research, he's at Stanford, he wrote a book also many, many years ago that much research has been done on. This was called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. So if you think about it, the zebra is in the Serengeti. He's being chased by a tiger. This is pretty darn stressful, right? You know, you're, you're maybe not going to make it. So the zebra has a stress response. The, um, the autonomic nervous system pumps out adrenaline. What happens with that is your pupils dilate, 
blood is directed to your muscles, you prepare for fight or flight or flee. Um, your respiration increases, digestion stops, so you are fighting for your life. Now, the, the zebra gets away, the zebra's okay. What does the zebra do next? About 30 seconds later, he goes and he starts eating grass. He's like, oh, I'm okay. Well, humans don't do that. Humans get in their head and they start worrying and worrying and worrying. Well, what is going to happen? Is that going to, is that tiger still stalking me? Now, 90% of the things we worry about don't actually come to fruition. However, those thoughts in our head still cause the same neurochemical responses. So what we're imagining, the right brain doesn't know the difference between reality and non-reality. So we have neurochemical responses that correspond to our thoughts. Now, coming back to what's going on in our current lives, we're all deeply worried. We're deeply worried for our family, our friends, our loved ones, the first responders, all those in the world. And so those worries are truly affecting our immunology, our physiology, and our overall health. Um, the other kind of interesting thing about the... the you need to end on a positive note. We'll make sure we come well, back to a positive. So, <laughs> so yeah. No, so the, the, the micro... Well, it, it, I want to show how much control we really have sure. over all this. So, so the, um, the gut microbiome, which we've talked about bacteria. So the gut microbiome produces 90% of our serotonin. Serotonin affects our mood. So when we're stressed and we're, and our, and our, we're feeling sick to our stomach over this, we're also corresponding to pretty horrible feeling of our thoughts and in, in, in our head. And so when you say I feel sick to my stomach, it's a visceral feeling, it's also an emotional feeling. Again, the interrelation of it all. So truly what happens um, in our environment affects our health. What happens in our minds affects our health and our immunology. Um, so <laughs> going back, is this being, is this too, too much? <laughs> no, but let, let's, uh, so let's, let's try and uh, bring it back to what, um, so to me, I tell people, you know, and I have to do it, uh, maybe others, I had to stop watching the news. I will watch it yeah. like once a week and I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. So that was interesting. And I try and find another source that's not uh, just a constant barrage of, you know, that doom and gloom is headed your way. Um, but what are some other things that people can be trying to do to stay informed, but yet keep themselves um I wouldn't use the word distracted, but eliminate stress. Uh, we talked about things you can do in your house that may actually be simple that can uh, keep you focused on something else. Right. So I have lots of I have lots of tips. Um, I just wanted to try and give some background on why these things work, why why the tips work. Because oh, it's good. We, yes, right. We yeah. are this interconnected being, um, and we're interconnected with our house. We kind of have these symbiotic relationships. So. So being in the home all the time, um, here's some things that we can do. Um, we talk about um, the importance of engagement. Isolation in also impairs, um, impairs in your immune functioning. So people who have more contacts are doing better. So we know that human contact is vitally important. We are social beings. So it becomes very important to reach out to others however that's possible. Now, those who don't have technology, an old-fashioned phone call still really is important. 
Um, so just keeping contact. If you are able to do these types of, of uh, Zoom contacts or face, FaceTime um, with your loved ones, I think that is, is one of the easiest things to do just to, to keep engaging. Human contact is important and that breaks that cycle. That boosts the immune system. That brings brings up your serotonin, your dopamine, your norepinephrine. So you're feeling better. You're feeling more capable. You have more hope, more control in your life. So go ahead and schedule a conference call and, and do that. Um, staying active is really important. As much of a routine that you can still maintain becomes quite, quite vital. Um, if you are alone in your home, uh, you know that it's it doesn't really matter you you probably have a little bit more control we find that with the kids our life is a bit unpredictable our eight-year-old twins uh they are kind of all over the place but a good puzzle um we've been playing lots of games we go for walks so all those things getting out if you can get out engaging in activities being creative um, online, there are lots of programs. Art museums are offering different tools of engagement for all ages. Uh, those are there are resources out there. Um, as you were saying, Joe, um, limiting media exposure is really important. We want to stay informed, but often that feeds into that stress cycle. So you have to determine what is right for you. And that's important for all of these. Everybody is very unique in how they're experiencing this and how they're feeling. So determine what is the right level of knowledge for you and what, what feels manageable. Um, another really important thing is doing for others. The act of giving back is really, really healing for all people. Those who do something philanthropic, uh, generosity, those bring really wonderful feelings, also releasing neurotransmitters that promote healing and well-being. So again, this, this really, it's all interconnected, how our body works and responds. So doing for others also is really good for others, but it makes you yourself feel really good. Um, in terms of actual tools, breathing is probably one of the most cited uh, exercises in mindfulness, in, in calming that autonomic nervous system process, gaining control, gaining mastery over it. So taking a deep diaphragmatic breath, that starts the parasympathetic response. That is the calming response. That's where that zebra is eating the grass and relaxing again. So that's taking control and instigating those processes. And in that place, your body can also heal and regenerate. If you don't get to that place, the stress of it all wears you down and that really does go to disease. Um, creativity is really good for the brain body. Um, getting in nature, if you cannot get out in nature, even watching images. So again, the way the brain works, whether you are imagining something, whether you are seeing it, the right brain thinks you're there. So if you envision something that gives you peace, a mountain scene, an ocean scene, whatever that is, that instills a feeling of well-being neurochemically. Yeah, I want to pause on that. So there's <clears throat> that's a major uh, part of well-building and well wellness in the building is to have that. Even if it's on your desktop, even if you just print a eight and a half by eleven and put it on your walls or in your bathroom, 
the the image is can be just as powerful on their studies that from being outside there's just something about seeing uh outdoor scenes that uh, allow us to feel better about ourselves and to actually improve cognitive functions for in schools and other places so biophilic uh, conditions is something that is easily done you can go go download a picture and put it on your desktop or even print something out so yeah yeah I mean, Adrienne, um, would you also say that the uh, term social distancing is kind of a misnomer? We really want physical distancing, right? But, the, you mm. know, distancing ourselves from others, it, we, we need that virtual connection with people. We still we still need to be speaking to others and doing these conference calls and telephone exactly, calls, right? Bob, totally, exactly. Isolating yourself from the rest of the world is not the answer, just it's physically of, isolating. Exactly. It's one of the worst things we could be doing right now. We need that connection to know that we're all going to get through this. Uh, we, now, let we me tell you what the doctor prescribed in our household. Okay. So as soon as this started to happen, she said, okay, we're going to reorganize. I'm now in her office, which is kind of cool. looks a little different. The children's rooms moved. Another room moved. And so it was empowering in that it felt like we were making progress. The children felt uplifted, right? It made the house fit the situation, and it gave us something to do. Uh, the next thing in this little office this morning, getting ready for this show, I found myself falling asleep because I didn't open the windows and I have one of the best ventilated houses in the country. So I just a reminder for all of us, when you're feeling that feeling of sleepiness, what you do is crack two windows in the house till you feel enough wind on the back of your hand and know it's moving and create cross ventilation. And that will reduce the CO2. I actually measured the CO2 in my little office this morning and it was over a thousand. So as we're adjusting, if we can control our air and the quality of our air in our house, it will significantly reduce the weight on, on us. And uh, Adriana mentioned that sick to your stomach feeling. That also comes, if you're chemically sensitive, from having too many chemicals in your house, right? So there's neuropsychological reasons and there's also reasons that have to do with something you can control. We can all open our windows. We can all control our home environment. Excellent. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Carl, you came I'd in. Like go to, ahead, Carl. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. One part I'd like to add to that is that, um, and maybe some input from all of you, and particularly Adriana, is how do we differentiate between our the symptomology and the feeling uh, we don't feel quite well in the house and differentiate that from some of the initial symptoms of the COVID infection? so that people can do simple things like open windows or whatever, instead of going to calling the doctor, going to the emergency room. Does anybody have any tips on what people can do to uh, take care of the homes first rather than the doctor? Crickets. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think if you have a fever and you have a, an intense cough, um, managing the home environment is is going to is going to be help you feel better. But I, I I think if you get more severe, you do need to to call your doctor. Um, but it's it is before you get to that. If you manage your home, you manage your stress, nutrition, if you you know all the the whole picture that is going to build up your immunity to give you more resilience against contracting the virus. So we want we want to build up this this is this immune system as much as possible, which is the home, our experience, and um, and and following the protocols. 
I mean, one to add, if we keep the air quality good in the house, we're reducing the spread of other infection. Our immune systems are stronger in general and less likely to get impacted by other things that will be stressful during this time. So Adriana, I want you to give advice as you have to your kids and to Bill or to anybody. It's, it's one thing to be uh, challenged with your own personal stress or your own anxiety, but we are in the house where we have others that we want to reduce their anxiety. Can you give us some things you've used in your own life as to what you've done to try to reduce the stress um, for family? So two things we're trying to do. Um, one is we're turning music on and we're dancing. <laughs> so um, just movement, music, again, getting into the right brain space tends to be very soothing for the body, gives us some resilience, gives us some ability to handle all the stress a little bit better. Um, we're also doing some working on gratitude. We're all trying to say what we are thankful for during this and try and remember there is there are things to be very grateful for and it's not just all horrific. There, there are some amazing things that are coming out of this too. We are all coming together as communities, as people, the world is in a great, you know, is, 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 the animals are, are doing well right now. The air quality is better. So like, what are some things that maybe we are learning from that? Those are things we can try and focus on and not just be focused in the anxiety all the time. Fantastic. Great answers. Bob, do we have any questions that have come through on the background of the live feed at all? Yeah, we have a couple, but you've covered them earlier. Um, so there's nothing on this current current break that we have to deal with. So I have in front of me the Hayward team. Um, so I'm going to uh, uh, go backwards from Carl to Adriana to Bill to give you your last um, one thing that you would advise people, whether it's um, physical, emotional, mental, whatever it is that either you're doing or you think is the most powerful thing that per somebody should do based on the um, distance in place um, conditions that are happening. Carl, why don't you go ahead? Um, yeah, it's... There's several different ways I can respond to this. I guess the 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 main one would be that I'll alter the way you consider your home and your house. It's not just this neutral object that is there that you go to and it's out of sight, out of mind. Um, and it's not something that is necessarily negative. We've talked a lot about, especially myself, about the kinds of things that in the home that can uh, cause illness or uh, discomfort. Uh, but it's more important to realize that it can be positive. You can manage, you can take some of that control that Adriana was talking about. Your home is one place where you can exert some control. That's important. And then pay attention, just being aware and paying attention to what kinds of things in your home and your family life uh, cause stress, what ones are removing stress, what ones make you don't feel so well, what, what, what kinds of activities, products and behaviors actually help you to feel better. And just becoming more aware and paying attention to that, uh, I think would be the, the, the more fundamental or overall suggestion that, that I would have. And pay attention to what Adriana said, because uh, that, that was excellent. And there's a lot of people I know out there on other groups that's not just the COVID infection part, but all the environmental sensitivities and so forth that uh, could really benefit from what you said, Adriana. 
Thanks, Sorry, Adriana, you're up. Why don't you give us your one recommendation? So I would just say use this time to create an environment that is really health promoting um, for you, your whole family, your pets if you have pets. Um, so manage your own stress and manage the stressors in your home. Open the windows, reduce your chemical exposures, and find something that is restorative to you, whether it is dancing, meditation, uh, talking on the internet, just find that place that is right for you. Excellent. I think you just stole Bill's thunder, but Bill, see if you can't do about coming up with something that was not discussed by either one of those. You know, it, it's similar advice in a way. It's, it's embrace your house. We're home. We're noticing more things than we've ever noticed. We're finding things that used to bother us. Oh yeah, I remember when that area smelled. Clean them out, freshen the house, let the outdoor air in, rebalance the indoor microbiome with the outdoor bio microbiome with the outdoor air. That's actually an important habit to do at least once a week. Um, and take time to learn about your house. Adrian and I got sick in the house. We created Hayward Score and we made it free so that everybody would have access to that knowledge. And this is a great time to share that. Uh, excellent. So um, mine would be on a similar note where kind of all touching base and that is that many of us know our cars really well. Like we could reach out and actually touch the air conditioning or the heating or know how to adjust the volume without even looking at the dashboard. That We have a, a symbiotic relationship with our cars, but we don't really have that with our houses. And I think this is, we've all pointed out, this is the time to get to know your house and make your house be as well-tuned as you think about your car or other things in your life, like the apps on your phone. Because usually we just come home, we eat, we do something, we watch TV, we go to sleep, and our house is just this background. And I think this is the time where there's lots of things you could be doing that are DIY, simple stuff. Uh, if you want to make some investments, these are small things you can do or decide to make an upgrade. So this is the time to let your home benefit your mental and, and physical and uh, uh, basically health in general. So, Bob, how about you? What's your one recommendation? Well, I think a big point is, is you know, this COVID-19 uh, pandemic took our focus off of everything else indoor environmental and, and understandably, right? Uh, but the reality is all the moisture problems, all the microbial problems, all the volatile organic compounds, radon, lead paint failures, all these things that have been going on in our environments that have, that have actually created these various indoor environmental industries, um, they're still there. <laughs> all that stuff's still there. And if anything, it might be uh, being exacerbated because we're spending more time in, you know, in our homes now than we did you know, at least over this, this uh, short uh, quarantine period. So I, I think it's really important to, you know, not forget about everything else. Obviously, we, you know, we need to be concerned about the, you know, the potentially, uh, you know, eminent threat here with COVID-19, but all, all these other things do come into effect, right? Would you agree? Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, our time is slightly over our a lot of time. So I'm going to go ahead and put up your slide and why don't you take us out, Bob? So anyway, um, you know, thank you for uh, watching this special 90 minute edition, 90 minute edition of the Healthy Indoors show. Um, we come to you every week live on healthyindoors.com uh, from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. typically uh, Eastern Daylight Time now during the summer. Um, you can get uh, access to the live show in real time or any of the recordings uh, from our previous shows, as well as uh, 
get yourself a free subscription to Healthy Indoors Magazine, which is a free monthly digital publication so avail available worldwide uh, to everyone. So you really should uh, take advantage of that. We're, uh, you know, an ongoing online resource for information. And, uh, you know, we encourage you to take advantage of that. So it's healthyindoors.com. Uh, like to really thank all of our guests today, Brian Orr from the uh, HVAC School podcast, uh, where you can find him at HVACR.com. And again, appreciate him uh, spending his time here with us this week, uh, as well as uh, my uh, weekly uh, wingman, Joe Medosh. <laughs> Who suddenly disappeared off the screen? That's that's always special. Oh, no, I, I put up a, I, I shared a slide. So oh, okay, yeah. okay, yeah. all right. Anyway, so I'd like to thank all of you guys, Adriana, Bill, uh, Carl. It's always a pleasure. We didn't get a chance to intellectually spar like we typically do at an industry event, uh, but there's always future opportunities for that. I hope so. And maybe I'll actually write something for your magazine one. Yeah, it's only been seven years we've been in publication. I've been asking you for an article, uh, so perhaps. You might have to encourage him a little bit. You know, somebody needs to. <laughs> anyway, with, with that, I'd like to thank all of you for uh, uh, watching the show this week. And we'll see you again next week here on HealthyIndoors.com for the Healthy Indoors show at 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Uh, for the show and everyone else here, I'm your host, Bob Krell. Please stay safe. <laughs>